I don't know. Did you watch the last World Cup game? I know it's like everyone hates this now, but I don't. I don't. I don't even like soccer. Okay. Well, you and Kevin can go suck a bag of dicks. My soulmate, Kevin. You and Kevin could go suck a very large bag of <laughs> soccerless dicks. <laughs> you really should have watched the end ceremony just for the like, just for the laughs. Because, like, Putin was just standing there with everyone else. And again, just a side note, also a shout-out to Kevin, uh, but not actually, whatever. Um, We've shouted him out enough. We've shouted him out enough, and it's not like he's the first one to talk about how everyone is short. <laughs> he's, and he's busy sucking his bag. Of yeah, he's actually going to be busy for, well, for quite some time, because you know those bags, they're <laughs> densely packed. They really have the packing down, the ergonomics of it, or whatever. Um, so... Yeah. Oh, so the whole height thing gets me every time. So I'm like looking at Putin standing next to Macron. What's his name? Yeah, Macron. <laughs> it's like, is his name literally a pastry? <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, it is. But, but he's also evidently a small man because... How small? Well, they look really similar. So I was like, unless there's like some serious... I was looking at the floor, but like they're standing on like a, you know, a platform and there's just no way to like get around it it wasn't a chair or anything it wasn't like when trump and him sit together let's find out how tall he is and then also standing next to the president of croatia can't remember her name but he's five foot eight there you go he's only an inch taller than poot sarkozy who was the previous french president was five five and a half well then he and medvedev could have had tea together but at the same (laughs) level (laughs) we like to be on the same level Anyway, so that was just fun. But it was just funny to watch, like, the dynamics of, like, the French players coming up and, and, and well, all the players when they come up and, like, they shake hands with each leader and they, like, most of them, like, kissed, I guess, because they're French, like, did a, at least, like, a head press with each person and, like, no one did it with Putin. Oh, really? Well, you don't want to press his media head. <laughs> Wait, so but they they so they pressed Macron's and the Croatians. Well, yeah, like it was just sort of like it was. I think it was like situational because Putin didn't lean in. Maybe he leaned in a couple times. And and once the first guy doesn't do it, it's not like the other guys. Yeah, and the other thing is like Macron's like you know crying with joy, so he obviously like makes out with each of their ears, so it's like full. (laughs) And then like, and then and then the other and then Croatia's president. What's her name? I have no idea. But people are saying she's hot. Is that true? No, she's just a woman. Does she have a vagina or not? Yes. No, I mean, she's like pretty, but she's, I wouldn't say she's hot. She's just like a, she's like a good looking like woman. I don't know. Not super young. I saw, wait, hold on. Let me find a picture for you. I kind of wanted Croatia to win. No. like, what the fuck? That's such a small country. Yeah, but Kalinda. Now I hate Croatia because they're just stupid. Oh, wow. Okay, so. She has huge boobies. <laughs> nice tits, lady. Wow, the lady's got tits. No, Croatia, you know the whole thing, right? Oh, no, no, what? One of their players said, like, glory to Ukraine after playing. But it's a phrase. It's not just, like, glory to Ukraine. It's, like, a specific phrase. Slav- Slava Ukraina. Which means what? Which means glory to Ukraine. But it, like... No, <laughs> no I understand that. But, like, what does that it's mean? ultra, like, Ukrainian, as in Western Ukraine, the country of Ukraine, um, nationalist. Which we hate. <laughs> we hate Western Ukraine. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah. Um, Kiev is a trash city. <laughs> no, no, no. I, no one said Kiev is a trash city. But... 
the that is the thing that like ultra Ukrainian nationalists and specifically now it's charged with an anti-Russian political sentiment. So him saying that after playing Russia, it's the player who like you took this personally. What? <laughs> you, you know what I said. Took I took it personally? Yeah. Uh no, literally all of Russia took it personally, but okay. <laughs> but I'm asking did you take it personally? I don't think personally is the right word. I was I'm I'm annoyed with any like explicit attempt to expand the meaning behind sports, you know? Like especially in a nationalist sense. So every time, like, whether it's, like, in an ultra-nationalist way, like, fuck Russia, like, yeah, Ukraine, just, like, random mass creation, or if it's in, like, a more... Um, just some random Ukraine or Croatian. Well, Croatian football player. <laughs> but if it's... He's the kind of ratty-looking, rat-like one with a ponytail, blonde. I literally have no idea who any of them are. All right, whatever. Anyway, in any case... Um, just a bunch of Croats. <laughs> Listen, what is, is that a derogatory term, Croat? I don't think so. Listen, I'm saying, like, whether it's that kind of thing or it's something more, like, kind of clothed posy, you know? Like, oh... Like Durov? Like, we can do it. Yeah, like, fucking Durov being like, I just love to see the nations. <laughs> I love French history, culture, art, music, food. It's like... I right. love croissants and football. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I just think they're all dumb altogether. But this got a lot of, you know, as it would, like, reactions from both sides. On the one hand, the, like official ukrainian media latched onto that and was like we love croatia our brothers <laughs> and it was just like yes we support and like the people like you know had were like really supporting the team and like wait wait, but do you think do you think that people that athletes shouldn't be allowed to vocalize their political opinions at, at global sporting events you mean like is fifa's reaction appropriate not not like i mean for you personally like do you think it's lame for a a sports player to express their political like, opinions. I just, yeah, I think not lame. Um, I think it's problematic to in any way insinuate that the way that they just played physically has anything to do with geopolitics. I mean, <laughs> it's just stupid. But the, is that what he was, is that what, oh, because they had just finished playing yes. Russia. So the implication was like, I did this for Ukraine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. like fuck you, Russia. I mean, I mean, it's, but, yeah, it's so yeah. Because it's because yeah. like each team has like a nation state behind it in the World Cup at least, and that's the kind of bullshit that like that kind of you know whatever that kind of politics is extreme. It's completely empty and like stupid, and it's stupid in any way. It, oh my god! Like they were. Did you see Gary Kasparov's tweet? Oh no! <laughs> no. After Ugh. I mean, like that guy needs to like tone it the fuck down. <laughs> Go make out with the queen and shut the fuck up. Ugh. The chess queen, I mean, not the real queen. Oh. <laughs> Wait, I want to kind of get the... Gary, how often do you tweet, my friend? What is that short for? Gary? Yeah. Good ass question. Oh, my God. Wait, what the fuck? His real name is Gary. <laughs> Lily? What? Yeah, whatever. He got it changed. Who knows? Gary Potter. That's how you... S Gary in Russian is how you say Harry. What? Why? Because they don't have an H, okay? <laughs> <laughs> Harry Potter. Oh my god, <laughs> that's fucked up. <laughs> Finally, the Harry Potter fan split. She hates Russian now. 
I feel like they should have just changed his name entirely because Gary is not like the right name. Okay, he, he was born Garrick. Garrick? Oh, okay. I think Garrick. Yeah, Garrick. Yeah, that's like a... Sounds, sounds to oh, me like an old fuck? name. Oh, what the fuck? But his last name is Weinstein. His real last uh, name. Wow. He changed it to Casper. What a Jew trader. Okay, so he likes what Pussy Riot did, but that's separate. Yeah, see? <sighs> oh my god, that was so lame. The only, like, the only time it's acceptable to go on like the field or something while a game is being played is if you are streaking yeah definitely because it's funny right yeah because people are like hee butts and they're like you're you're butt naked and somebody tackles you like that's funny but as usual pussy riot has to do something that's just like kind of lame and not very interesting <sighs> yeah they just do have a want for that even though it's not even the same people they just train yeah, themselves well. to do that uh oh, now everyone's gonna hate us because we don't hate him pussy ride again. Oh my god, here it is. Oh my god, this motherfucker. See, this is the kind of thing. So Croatia and Russia have just played, right? And Croatia beat Russia and first of all, they played okay. I mean they didn't play great, but they played much more shittily in the next game. They played in like a really aggressive way, but also won Croatia. So I also don't like how they play. It's not just their bigotry. Alright, right, let's let's skip that commentary. Okay. So <laughs> it's not as good. So he wrote, uh, July 7th, he wrote on Twitter, Bravo Harvatska, I guess that's how you say Croatia, and then the flag. I only, this is embarrassing. <laughs> I only wish the free world would show the same resilience fighting Putin's advances in the geopolitical field as the Croatians demonstrated on the football field. Oh. I mean, yeah. It's exactly what I'm saying. People do that shit all the time. Yeah, I know. But, okay, so I'm not blanket against people, athletes, expressing political opinions because it's like these events don't happen that often and it's like a rare opportunity to get a message in front of people who wouldn't otherwise hear it because sports are like a, you know, a thing that a lot of people will watch even if they don't follow politics or aren't political in any way. So I'm not not blanket against it, but I understand. Yeah, no, I guess I'm not either, but I just, yeah, it's like... If they wanted to, like, I'm all for people using their fame platforms to, like, push whatever they their platforms are, you know? Yeah. And athletes just don't have that much of a, pl- a fame platform except at specific events. Yeah, but they can do that without their platform being, like, particularly nationalist. Well, I don't like nationalist platforms, so sorry. Right. No, no, no. <laughs> that's your problem is the nationalist platform. But if he had gotten up there and he had like made some sort of nuanced statement about like gay rights in Russia, you would probably feel differently about yeah, it. Yeah, but why would he say gay rights in Russia? Because he just played Russia? Yeah, or he's in Russia. Yeah, okay, yeah. But I don't think he cares about gay rights. You don't think he's a gay? <laughs> no. This is the meat of the podcast. <laughs> Have you ever caught your profile reflection in the mirror? Yeah. 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 This shit feels like I won't ever make it more. Traffic's backed up. I got to get off of this road. All right, from St. Petersburg and Brooklyn, this is She's in Russia, I'm Lily.
And I'm Smith. What the fuck is today's episode about? It's a good question. It's in one or two words about a market. I'm just gonna bring you into this with a bang. Thank you so much, Tillman. Thank you for having me. Happy birthday to you. Day to you. Happy birthday, dear Tillman. Happy birthday to So, as you maybe as you maybe can tell, that was J Lo performing at the birthday party of a certain Mr. Telman Ismailov back in 2006. And as Forbes tells me, that arrangement where J Lo comes and sings Happy Birthday and Hank, she was just playing the whole time at his birthday celebration. This guy cost him 1.4 million big ones. USD. Good move, J-Lo. Did he just, like, really love J-Lo? Yeah, you're gonna find out that he really loves a lot of people. So I bet you're wondering who is Telman. I am, yes. Yes, I am. So Telman Ismailov is a man born in Baku, Azerbaijan in 1956. So when Azerbaijan was a Soviet state in SSSR, Socialist Soviet Republic. He's the 10th of 12 children from a Muslim and mountain Jewish. Do you know what a mountain Jew is? No. Well, now you know. Do I? (laughs) According to Wikipedia, it's like Jewish people from the Caucasus regions. So Azerbaijan and like Dagestan. A mountain Jew. (laughs) There's definitely a lot of jokes there, but I don't know what they are. Yeah. And they're offensive, maybe. I'm just picturing, like, Larry David, like, walking around mountains, like, sweating. Oh, my God. That's a great... Larry David needs to... The wild mountain Jew. (laughs) Mountain Jew. Um, At home. So, he's from this big family, and his father was this particular... Like, there's a particular Soviet term for what his father was. It's called a Tsekhovik, which is, like, hard to define. It's basically somebody, like, a businessman, quote-unquote, during the Soviet era who, you know, like, was an also, in quotes, entrepreneur. So, like, did different things, sold things, like, made money in some way outside of the state system, okay. but, like, with kind of, like, maybe with a state position that, you know, that also helped them to sort of, like, sign the right papers or whatever, smooth things out. He had a big sort of organization of businesses and stuff in Baku, which I imagine more like a network, not like a concrete business. But anyway, from a young age, from the age of 14, Talman would help his dad and eventually was the head of a of the first commercial shop in Baku. Then he went to Moscow in the late 80s. He studied there and stuff, but in 1989, he registered a company called AST. And at some point, it's actually kind of like a group of companies. At some point, there were like 30 little companies within the group. And th- he did that sort of like scheme where... They belong to different relatives and, and everyone. Okay. So just to like make everything spread out a little bit more. But this AST is kind of infamous. He like built this empire of wealth on various uh, ventures. Like I'll get into what exactly I mean by that. All from this group of companies, like all registered with this group of companies. And he did really well for himself and 
up until 2015, he was in the top 200 wealthiest Russians list, like Forbes does a list, Forbes Russia, and his net worth was $800 million. Okay. One of his companies or businesses and his most profitable one was a market, giant market in Moscow. Other things that he owned... Are you going to describe the market in more detail? Like what kind of market yeah, yeah, yeah. per se? Oh, I'm okay. going to describe it. So I, okay. I just want to give you an idea of like the sort of scope of this guy's ventures, as I would call them. So he owned like a big restaurant in Moscow. At some point in the later, in 2013, he was like funding, building a synagogue in Grozny, Grozny, the capital of Chechnya. Does he practice any religion? Do you know? I don't know, but I feel like the synagogue thing is indicative, indicative of his mountain <laughs> Jew origin. <laughs> um, he identifies more with the mountain Jew than the Muslim. I think he was pro-Israel, so is. I mean, he's still alive. Okay. He's not dead. So he's building this empire starting in the late 80s. And he also, when he, when he starts, uh, starts his businesses and stuff in Moscow, he befriends or at least makes acquaintance with Moscow's mayor Yuri Lushkov Lushkov who is was the mayor from 1992 all the way to 2010 <laughs> okay. when he was he was forced to resign by the then president Medvedev in 2010 and he's a important character because I mean he's the mayor of Moscow so anything that goes on in Moscow you know kind of needs to have his blessing yeah and the other big asset that that uh telman owned was a massive hotel in turkey very controversial hotel that played a very important role in his fate as it turns out Uh, yes okay um and one fun biographical fact about him his hobby was watch collecting and at one point he (laughs) owned owned over two thousand watches watches don't really do it for me i don't think i would ever collect watches I mean, would you have 2,000 of any one object? It's so crazy. Well, yeah, no, that's true. So he's from Azerbaijan, right? Like from born in the Soviet Union. So that means like when the Soviet Union fell, he was an Azerbaijani citizen. Um, but he ended up switching to have Russian citizenship and also has Turkish citizenship because apparently Azerbaijan doesn't let you have dual. So he okay. renounced his Azerbaijani. Yes. Okay. So the market. The market is his biggest asset. And I'm going to name a figure, but not not until I get to the height of the market's heyday or whatever. So the market was established in the early 90s. I don't have an exact date. The first thing that you need to know about it is its name, which is the Cherkizovsky market. And it's like nickname is Cherkizon. Cherkizon. Okay, so it's located in a huge vacant lot in the Ismailovsky district of Moscow, which is like over to the east. So the market's massive. It's like one of those open air stall filled markets where the stalls are just like crushed together and there's alleyways, etc. And it's just huge. The figure I have is that it covers 0.2 square miles, 0.18 square miles. Is that a lot? Also known as 49 hectares. I feel like I can understand acres better than hectares. One he- wait, okay, one hectare is equal to 2.471 acres. So that's a lot. That's like, so you said it was about 40 hectares. So that's like 49. Oh, 49. So that's like 100 acres. That's big. It's that's like really Winnie big. the Pooh's house. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> exactly. We did a hundred acre wood. So back to our 49 hectares, big market. And one of the things, so it's not the only market in the city. I, and I will tell you about some other markets, but at least one other. But it has like, it has sort of a specific, I mean, it ends up having a reputation as being this like really seedy place and also has an important like ethnic factor. I don't know how else to refer to it, which is that most of the people who work there are from China, Chinese immigrants. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Okay. And at its peak, according to like official Russian Russian statistics, so they could be less than the actual number or they could be just off. I don't know. There uh, were 100,000 people working there. And I'm going to explain how that's possible in a second. That's like a thousand people per hectare. <laughs> hundred acre. Yeah, per acre. A hundred thousand people employed in sort of like the whole in the total, whatever. So including, I guess, like people not exactly on the territory all the time. And a big chunk of them, 60K, are f- people from China. Then there's also like the rest of the workers are the majority of them are from former Soviet republics from of Central Asia and Vietnam. But then there's 14.2 thousand legally registered jobs. So 100,000 is a lot more than Wait, that. Do you, are you going to explain like why it's all Chinese people? I can only explain that in, yeah, I'm, I'll try to explain, but I don't have like an exact answer. So, okay. so yeah, so that's like, that's another important fact, factor of this. And the way people refer to it is as a city within a city. So you have this massive physical area, territory, but then it's like, it has its own inner workings and organization and basically is like a when people say city within a city they mean it has its own infrastructure like it had its own well security system that was basically police like laws that were like are governing the workers basically and then a, a whole infrastructure for like life in the market because and this is where it gets really fucked up and scary a lot of these people lived underneath the market in like really horrible conditions basically in like i don't know what to even call it like an underground you know system of tunnels and stuff that had rooms and just a whole underground you could say city but that would be like i don't know what the image of an underground city it's more like an underground like building but like not a full building, really, right? Or was it a full building underneath? No, not a full building. I, I, like, is it dirt floors? Do you know? Um, I don't know if the floors, like, I can't really tell what the floors are from the videos I watched. But like, we're talking about like extremely cramped living quarters, like not like maybe there are halls and tunnels and sort of leading, like leading around here and there. But like people are just living like room on room on room in like these sort of bunk bed situations, just planks like against a wall and then like say 10 foot by 10 foot because that's what it looked like to me there would be like like six people living there or something Uh. from the like documentaries that I watched which were pretty I mean they were pretty sensationalist these are documentaries that are on like on tv and like state tv channels like channel one and channel 24 um they refer to people who live there sometimes as slaves because like they were in some capacity not able to leave and they were obligated to be there because they had work there and then didn't have documents most of them right so they couldn't like go rent an apartment 
what was like the kid situation? Because presumably people yeah. are having kids there. If there's a hundred thousand people working there, I mean, yeah, people had kids. And in terms of like the, this is what's crazy about the whole underground, and I mean like physically underground infrastructure. So there's like the market happening on top that's you know open every day, and people are selling things. And then underneath all of this, there's this living area, and that's where all like there's everything sort of. <laughs> it sounds so fucked up to be like. <laughs> everything you could need but like in a really <laughs> shitty way everything you could ever imagine <laughs> you wanted there are like doctors and dentists people have babies there's like a canteen that's really shitty and like a fancy restaurant you know there's like also class divisions there's all underground yeah, yeah all underground there's a whole Whoa. room with like a huge collection of like bootleg videos and like cds do you know if at the time people knew that this was going on like when they went to the market that they knew that everybody was under no i think market? no i think not i okay. highly doubt people knew people could see like the ethnic makeup of people who work there i guess but no uh, in terms of like the living conditions i don't think so there's also like no there was no like running water or toilets there's like toilets up at the top in the market so you have to like get out of that like hellhole you know the underground like clusterfuck and like use the bathroom and you have to pay to use the bathroom oh god so fucked in russia the public bathrooms you pay like a small amount of rubles but there wasn't like a separate bathroom for the workers or like showers it's crazy it's crazy thinking about him like planning out this thing i mean like we'll just build housing underneath the market and then we'll get a bunch of chinese people to work there yeah i mean I well, that's the thing when you like know when you like learn about how fucked up it was there. It's like that's sort of what makes our main character Telmon's like behavior really disturbing. So the whole like people from China thing. A lot of these people are coming with a huge amount of products to sell, and it's mostly it's stuff. So it's like clothes and shoes, like maybe accessories. Oh, so these people, like, own their own booth. It's not like they're just working in the Yeah, booth. yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I don't know, like, again, I, for that, I don't have statistics about, like, you know, how, like, is everyone who's from China a seller? But the clothes are coming from China, and they're being smuggled in, in different ways in containers and stuff. But there are people, like, people from China who had, you know, invested a shit ton of money. And then they live in these like horrible conditions and sell their stuff and presumably make a good amount of money. But because of like possibly because of the documentation, like I'm kind of what's the word extrapolating extrapolating a little bit. But like because of the documentation, they're like stuck. They like first of all, everything's unofficially wrought in. And that's obviously illegal. You're not paying taxes on it. Each whatever bag of stuff or container of stuff doesn't have like any official papers that say exactly where it's from or anything. So, you know, if something happens to your stuff as, like, a stall owner, you can't, like, do anything about it. You just, like, lose your money, which sucks. Right. The market makes a lot of money, and people make a fair amount of money there. At some point, the the lease for what I understood is this is for, like, a booth was $50,000 a month. Is that possible? No. It says the lease for a selling point. So, yeah, I don't know. But, like... What the fuck? Yeah, people. No, actually, I don't know, but actually, like in like 2009, the owners, so I'm assuming they split this amongst themselves, made a million dollars a day. So that's not only from, that's not only from like customers and stuff. There's like a whole system of bribes that needs to be paid along the way in order to like get 
the stuff from, let's say, from China to that market, but then like into it and then it's stored and there's just like people at every point, you know? And so anytime uh, there's like a quote unquote checkpoint, somebody's making money off of that. Yeah. So there's just like, yeah, there's a shit ton of money flowing through that's not being, you know, that's not going through official channels. And you make a lot of money evidently working there or like you if you sell your stuff like there was one one Chinese couple that was interviewed that had purchased like ten thousand dollars worth of stuff or something to sell so it's like it's like really significant chunks of money oh and and then the other thing to keep in mind is that obviously like since all this money is flowing through I mean there's officials that handle imports and they're also accepting bribes so there's like okay. definitely government officials involved at some point along the way or else this wouldn't happen. You can't just like have an o- your own city. <laughs> well, you you can't you can't get it. You wouldn't be able to get stuff in if there wasn't official people helping you, you know? Right. Because it's not just right. It's not just like people like it's not just Chinese people like bringing in a bag full of stuff. It's like ten thousand dollars worth for one booth. Oh, yeah. So it's like a lot. of Yeah. Stuff. And they have thousands of um, containers like container shipping, you know? OK. Yeah. So this is like the sort of first massive influx of like these cheap chinese made a lot of counterfeit stuff okay because this is such a big place as you might imagine there are rooms underneath the market where that people are sewing so there's stuff being made also there right okay god so it's like also a factory yeah it's like a sweatshop and barracks or like whatever you fuck you want to call it like a hellhole yeah this whole concept of it being its own economy its own like isolated place or whatever self-sufficient place in a really fucked up way people also gave a lot of significance to it socially and like i and there's something to be said for that which is that things that were sold there were cheap they were cheaper than anywhere else even neighboring markets they could be like half the price so for a lot of people for students for like pensioners this is like a important thing to be able to have to be able to get cheap clothes. This economist and professor name, whose name is Nikita Krychevsky, and he talks about like the overall economic meaning of Cherkasov, this market for Russia. And he says like that you shouldn't give too much importance to Cherkasov as like the center of small retail, because at least according to him, yes, it was like a massive concentration, etc., and it was in Moscow the capital, but it wasn't the only place. There were other channels. It wasn't the only place where you could buy cheap goods. And that's not like a accurate view of how contraband was working at that time. Because there was like, there were trains coming in from China that dropped off things at other places. There were people coming in from Central Asia with stuff to different like points, not only to Moscow. So I don't know. He's like... He thinks that it, like, isn't as centralized as you might think. And he's sort of talking about this concept, like, if you close the Cherkasov market, where are people going to go? And he's like, well, like, that's not a thing. Like, there's the low-quality counterfeit goods will find another place to be sold. There's other markets. You know, there's, like, whatever. There's other ways. And that his sort of, like, statement is being made in the context of a discussion amongst authorities about closing the market because basically right away, I mean, within the first few years, the authorities either want to control what's going on or they want to stop it. 
at what point did it become like publicly known that this was happening? Like at what point did they say, oh, okay, we have to actually do something about this? That was only said in a really like loud public way in 2009. Okay. Smaller scale, you know, outcries against the market because just because it's a big fucking like hot mess and nobody wants to live near it and all that. That was happening as far as I read starting from 1999. And one thing that's important is that the whole like relationship, whatever that is, friendship, acquaintanceship between the mayor and Telmon is such that the mayor always defended the market. This economist, uh, Kuchewski, that I'm reading the statement from, his statement is in the context of people talking about closing it. And he's basically like, that's just like not going to solve the problem. Like closing it doesn't really matter because all of those, you know, illicit whatever channels of goods, all of that's not going to go away if you just close this market it's still gonna happen and we'll find other places it's like not you know it's like putting a band-aid on a cut <laughs> thank you on a broken a, bone on a gaping wound yeah yeah and then he's really skeptical of the authority so the last part of his statement is just being like if they destroy it like moscow authorities have nothing to lose they can build a big shopping mall on that land and then they can lease it to the very same telmon his milo <laughs> and he'll pay taxes on it how you doing? I'm doing good. Okay. A kind of larger context of like how much of an anomaly this market is in, let's say, 90s Moscow. It's arguably an anomaly in terms of its like epic structure and like all of the, the scale of it all. But the context for like this, for, for sort of the sudden appearance of, um, of trade, of retail in post-Soviet Russia is important. So... In January 1992, Boris Yeltsin is president. Boris. Bori. Boria. And he signs an order for free trade. Whatever. He signs something, like some kind of law about free trade. So it's like, that's really a big deal. People were not allowed to, the whole like entrepreneur thing that I mentioned from Telman's dad in Baku, like that whole thing, like that, you know, do making your own profit as a private business person is not allowed, including selling things for example that you make and it like maybe seems like not a i don't know how big a deal that is but that's like a paradigm shift no it seems like a big deal yeah Yeah. and people go fucking crazy and they start selling everywhere just like people (laughs) people are selling jam that they made they're selling their like homemade socks (laughs) they're selling shawls they're selling like random ass shit that they had in their house and they're doing it just like anywhere on the street because the law it, it was it was sort of amended at least once, but it was pretty damn free. Like you, you could really, except for like near the metro or something, there was like some restriction. You could pretty much sell anything anywhere. Um, and people did that. And people would like line up outside of like, you know, a big store or something where they knew there'd be a lot of people or like li- they would line up to sell things, like <laughs> not, not to buy them. Oh, funny. Like a line of people <laughs> selling things. That's the the atmosphere of whatever you want to call that entrepreneurship, but specifically retail oriented. I just also want to like really, really briefly cover another giant market in Moscow, just so that you get the idea of the fact that there were like different ones, different kinds. The other one that is also really famous and no longer exists is called Luzhniki. It was built before Cherkizone, a little bit before, and it closed in 2011. And it's located near the stadium of the same name. So there's a big stadium called Luzhniki, and that's where the 1989 Olympics 
closing ceremony happened um, okay. with the big bear and everyone cried. That's where Kino played their last concert. Aww. And everyone cried also. Aww. And that's also where France beat Croatia's booty in the <laughs> World Cup final yesterday. So, yeah, the, this market is a little bit different. It's, it's also massive. It's also like stalls that sell stuff. But this is a market that is more expensive. It doesn't necessarily have like explicitly things only from China. It also... I believe uh, is mostly Russian, Rus- Russian people selling things, and also doesn't have the whole like underground part. But I, I think I'm, I mean, I'm sure there are still its own sort of like laws and definitely corruption and definitely all of that, um, you know, its own security system and everything. But not the whole like city within a city. In the early '90s, like, where do people get stuff? They get stuff from state-owned stores that like have particular things like particular clothes in them and particular shoes and everything not a lot of choice and then I mean there was like there was underground stuff happening there was like jeans being being smuggled in in the in the 80s at least right right (laughs) only jeans yeah just people just like went crazy for jeans and just like wore jeans everything but so did everyone else in the 80s it's not like stores especially I mean really international brands those brands don't just like come to russia overnight they don't just like you know get a what do you call those people a seller like a buyer in russia and like set up shop or even like through a buyer like import you know totally officially and everything that doesn't happen for a while but what does happen is that people do start importing real allegedly real foreign-made brands and this is one of the markets where those brands would be sold. So this, this is a place where like people think about the 90s as being a time when everyone was struggling. And that's true, I think, for the majority of people. And there was like horrible financial crisis and inflation. And yeah, like most people are not doing well. But there were rich people who are the people, some of them are the people we know as like the oligarchs or making money in various rackety ways or just like taking advantage of the situation that doesn't always have to be as like horrible as like enslaving people underground. <laughs> there can be more peaceful means of taking advantage of the privatization of industry, as they say. And so there are there are people with money, and there are like there were things like shoes or like fur coats that were sold at this market for thousands of dollars. So these people, there were some people making bank at this at this market, like the sellers. My first question when I learned about that was just like, well, like, how are people spending so much money at a market? It just like, doesn't make sense. But it's like, you have to understand that like, this is the retail zone. Right. It's like people go there with the expectation that they're going to spend money. They're get, Well, yeah, because this is where they're going to get stuff. They're not going to like, there's no, there is no branded store. There's no even like outlets with other brands, you know? There's not even an outlet? <laughs> yeah, there's not even a discount outlet. No Ross? That's crazy. Here's some stable characters on Sir. One of them is Pasha. Do I need to say who he is? He's the CEO of Telegram. <laughs> we're we're good friends with him actually. So Pasha Durab, just whatever in the nineties, as an infant in the nineties, <laughs> as an infant, he wasn't an infant. Yeah, as a kid, as like a as a preteen. So, um, friend of the podcast, Pasha. Friend of the podcast, Pasha as you already know, is from 
a small town in the Lugansk region of eastern Ukraine. And his mom worked in a market there for most of his childhood. Okay. The, the market in the town. First of all, she had to pay also like big bank for her stall. Per month? No, no, no. I think as a one-time thing. Okay. To buy it. Yeah, yeah. Oh my God, that would be crazy. Yeah. To buy it. Maybe that's what those $50,000 was. Not a month. That seems crazy. Let's yeah, just say to buy that it. makes more sense. Yeah. Still, it's like a fucking car. So, but $4,000 especially. More than a car, Lily. How much do you think a car costs? Okay, half a car. <laughs> no, what? No. <laughs> like, oh, I mean, what kind of car are you trying to buy? <laughs> oh no they cost like i mean 30. like maybe like a tesla does but if you're trying to get like a toyota it's that's gonna good. be like twenty thousand. Oh, that's yeah. good that means the car's way more within my reach than i thought my goal my dream to buy a reasonable car <laughs> okay anyway one of the places she would go to buy stuff was these markets in moscow oh okay interesting so in not into like kiev or like another port city where you would think they also have their own funnels like she didn't always go to Moscow, but there were definitely times where she, with, like, a truck or something, and somebody would help her, would go and, like, buy stuff at, like, Cherkazon or one of the other big markets in bulk, you know, and you get, like, a deal or whatever, and she would have, like, maybe a few of those massive plastic bags. Mm-hmm. They're, like, two, they're, like, maybe six feet long, two meters, you know, kind of, like, solid, like massive wide duffels so they could be like three feet wide and six feet long and has a zip all the way down you know she would like have an arrangement with one of the people who like brings in a container or something and she would go and like get a a shit ton of stuff like maybe two or three of those massive bags that are like six feet long and three feet wide they're like really big solid duffel bags and then like load them up sometimes she went in a car sometimes she I don't know how she did it maybe she like didn't have as many bags and like sort of hitchhiked but just very self-sufficient way of getting getting goods from somewhere like Turkazone and then all the way back to this little town in eastern Ukraine so yeah so this is like this is from the early 90s all the way up until 2009 this market is living and thriving babies are being born people are dying ah it's a whole cesspool of love and light and in early june 2009 putin vladimir putin our glorious president who is then um, prime minister he makes a very fateful statement and a not so not so veiled statement about cherkazon so good so he's like we've been talking about fighting contraband we've been talking about all this but i'm talking about you know like helping national industry and like small businesses or whatever but it seems like there's just not a lot of results and the results in this case is imprisonment and he's like where's the imprisonment in a very putin-like fashion he delivers this whole speech which goes on longer than the than the clip we just heard never actually mentioning the name of the particular market oh my god he loves doing yeah you know that's a thing he does so yeah it's something that's become yeah almost like it's become a meme in some ways but basically like at some kind of in any speech that he gives um as soon as he mentions something if he's mentioned something 
that thing's gonna be a, a, like an important political topic basically that's mm. that's how that works so he never mentions the name of the actual market when he's talking about like needing to get results and what needs to be done and all that stuff but uh yuri chaikov do you recognize that name doesn't chaikov mean pigeon or something <laughs> Chaika means Chaika with an A means seagull, but pigeon's oh, also a word. <laughs> but pigeon is cute. But Yuri Chaikov is the prosecutor general of Russia and has been since 2006. So he is at this yes, time. Yes. And you may recall him from one of the Navalny exposure videos. And we we talked about him in one of our episodes. I can't remember which. One. Oh yeah, we did Chaiki. Okay. After Putin's finished speaking, Chaikov says the name explicitly. Cherkazon. We're talking about the Cherkazon market. Okay. And it's all downhill from there. So after hearing these words, the government, customs people, they start scrambling. Like, it's time to kick this into gear. It's time to, it's time to close it's that time baby. To s- yeah. <laughs> oh, we didn't know anything about it. Oh, well, what? First in hearing. It really is a bad place. <laughs> but why then? Why June 2009? Does Putin suddenly get angry about no results happening? I mean, this is really, this has been hap- this has been going on for a long time. At least he's been president slash prime minister since 2000. So why now? According to probably the main version of events, it all was because of the hotel. Uh, recall the hotel? I do recall. In May, so just a month earlier, 2009, the main character of our story, the owner of the Cherkazon market, Telman, officially opens a massive luxury hotel called the Mardan Palace in the lovely city of Antalya, Turkey. And when I say open, I don't mean like, oh, like now it's open. There was a very expensive, ornate opening ceremony for this hotel. Okay. That was only half jokingly compared to the Olympics opening and closing ceremonies, Olympic ceremonies. But here's where it gets a little embarrassing. Talmon invited, as is his want, a bunch of American and European celebrities to the event, including Sharon Stone, Richard Gere, <laughs> yeah, and, okay. and, and Monica, Monica Bellucci, Lewinsky, and Paris Hilton. Okay, nice. And so he invites, like, these, like, super celebrities to come to his opening ceremony, which includes a press conference, etc. And everyone's, like, I saw, like, video of this press conference. Everyone's so praising the whole thing. They're all like, oh, thank you so much. Like, it's so nice that, like, you welcomed us to this and invited us and paid us, obviously, but they don't say that. Like, wow, Mr. Nice Man. At one point, Sharon Stone says that it's great that he's creating jobs, this poor shit town, of Antalya and Richard Gere says something about the fact that you know he's really happy to be here and he loves turkeys and turkey for the first time and that Telmon has had donated a large sum to his foundation and so this is sort of like a Uh, thank you gesture you just know that these people don't know that there's like an underground sweatshop under this guy's market or they potentially don't even know about the market but um they definitely don't know about the market. Yeah, they don't know about the market. Okay. They definitely don't know about the market. And that's the main flow of income for Talon is this market. So that's how he funds us. But this uh, hotel is, yes, the opening ceremony is lavish, but this hotel itself is 
incredibly lavish and not in like a cheap way. First of all, it's it's a whole territory, you know, with like gardens and fountains and everything. And it's like in a, like a traditional Ottoman style. It's like trying to be uh, authentic. Would you describe it as beautiful or is it still gaudy? I mean, some parts of it are definitely beautiful because like they bring in all the like beautiful real materials. There's like whatever, like marble and gold and like crystal. Everything is like actual stuff. Um, and of course okay. that looks beautiful. They like, there's like a beach and the sand is brought in from Egypt because it doesn't heat your feet as much. Good on you, Egypt. So yeah, it's like extremely extravagant, costs thousands of dollars a night. And this stuff altogether costs, according to Talmon himself, an estimated, get ready, $1.5 billion Damn, to build right. this hotel. So it's it's like, it's fairly easy to see why the Russian government, seeing all of this, including like some officials are definitely, some Russian people are definitely there at the ceremony, but or just hearing about it and seeing headlines about it. It's easy to see why they would be pissed because, um, well, for two reasons. One is that all the money that's funding this is evidently from selling illegally imported goods on Russian soil. Right. And then... The other reason is that Telman just essentially invested, I mean, that's how he talks about it, invested $1.5 billion into Turkey rather than into Russia. And that's like rough. But the other thing that sort of makes it more notable, like the, the context, is that Russia is starting to prepare for the Sochi Olympics already. So they, they, they've got like, you know, big projects that are going to cost a lot of money and they need like investors in it and so investing 1.5 billion dollars into turkey rather than into some to build something in russia is like a bit of a it's a slight bit of a slight but tell on it may not have been evident right away but he's a smart cookie and he had his reasons for why he picked turkey but he like talked about it very like i've always had a dream of investing in this beautiful country i love this country and i did it and yay i invested following Putin's statement, as I said, like people start scrambling to close Cherkazon. And the other sort of like arm of what's happening is that there's a massive media campaign that starts to smear both Cherkazon, the market, and Telmon. Okay. Are these documentaries you watched part of that? Yes. This so part of part of the reason I said sensationalist is that a lot of things that come out of like that time, 2009, are like you know, really playing up the, like, here he is, like, surrounded by caviar and women and jewels, and, like, here's his market with people in, like, horrible bunker things, like, not having a bathroom. So, yeah, you get this smear campaign going on, and Russian authorities shut down the market in the summer of 2009 for several official reasons, which include illegally importing goods, Sanitary slash work conditions, fire code standards, love that one. Oh, and also like harm to the Russian economy. And at the time of the closure, there were reportedly 6,000 of those big shipping containers on the territory of the market. And in 58 of them, the investigation committee found clothing and shoes that they declared to be like toxic unhealthy and specifically for children so there's a whole the children came in there for a little bit 
Okay. You know, like... Gotta bring in the children. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, come on. Local economy just doesn't do it for people. But the children. As you might imagine, the shutdown of the market is also signals the the ruin of Mr. Ismailov's personal fortune and just like status and everything. So remember, he had been like one of the wealthiest people in Russia. Did did he ever respond directly to the whole like fact of these people living in horrible conditions? I mean, I know that he denies like every all the charges against him. So Okay. Yeah. How though I don't know. Like maybe he does it in a sort of way that's like this isn't actually under my control. Like I didn't know about that or something like that. That's my business partner. He takes care of the housing. Yeah, that's like my third cousin who like owns that company that does that. That's not my company. <laughs> I like at this point I don't know if this is like part of a campaign to ruin him or if this actually is, is the case financially for him, but he was in debt. And there's this whole case that was opened by a bank. At that point it was called Bank Moscow between 2014 and 2015, and it's like saying that that he owes the bank a bunch of money and demanding it be repaid. Telman starts moving his assets in different ways. So, like, some of them he changes the documentation to be offshore. Um, he gives them to relatives, more so, I guess, than before. <laughs> um, he eventually is forced, in 2015, he's forced to sell the hotel. Remember, it costs $1.5 billion, estimated, to build. And he sold it for $125 million. Yikes. That's rough to a turkish I mean, bank that's like rough obviously but also he deserves it well yeah and also 125 million is so much money i know it's but it's not if you've spent 100 1.5 billion right or if you like owe more than that to the um, bank of moscow yeah so then there's this whole thing with like his bankruptcy which is sort of like a legal game that happens where like that bank that says he owes them they say that he owes them $17.4 billion. What the fuck? Yeah, well, who knows? So this is like the strategy of him getting out of this. He would have to declare bankruptcy for that case. They open up a claim that he owes that much. And his acquaintance then submits... Oh, okay, so before they do the claim, he changes his official registration and address in Russia. He like moves okay. officially, changes registration. Um, somehow before the bank files a claim. So he obviously has inside knowledge. Then his acquaintance submits a new claim for bankruptcy from the new address, the one he's actually in. And it says that he owes only 15 million rubles, which is about $240,000. Very reasonable. Very reasonable. It's fine. And while the like paperwork is getting changed to, from the bank's claim to go to the new address, it's like going through different, whatever, like bureaucratic processes... He pleads guilty to the second claim. He's like, oh, yeah, that's how much I owe. And, like, I'm bankrupt. Oh, whoa. Wait, so who, but who filed, he filed the second claim, his the one friend. claiming bankruptcy. His friend filed it. Said like, his friend filed, like, a lawsuit against him? Yeah. Whoa. Wait, but how did his, his friend said that he owed him personally that much money? Uh, yeah, I guess so, yeah. Okay. So, okay. So then he and then he like he pleads guilty and in this at this point it's 2015 and he says I this is what I own. I have one piece of small piece of land outside of Moscow. I have 25,000 rubles in cash and I have some like 
not even worth mentioning amounts of money in my bank accounts. But a year later, that same bank is able to push to prove that the like second claim was invalid and open their claim again. And it's just a whole shit show. Via that claim, they're like really attacking him, this bank. So they're trying to like freeze his assets, right? Because he still has assets offshore that this like weren't getting counted right, and all right, of this. Of course. And also in apparently other countries in March 2017. So we're almost up to the common era. The <laughs> that bank's claim is somehow filed in a US court to to seize a mall that he happens to own in Las Vegas. Oh, whoa, okay. So that's seized by a US court. And then his other assets, I guess, are like dug up and start to be sold. And there's some like random things there, like some one hit wonders, like for some reason he owns an 18 foot Christmas tree that's sold. <laughs> he owns some other real estate. So that's a little bit more hefty. And so things are getting sold off in November. But on November 11th, his lawyer announces that he's been arrested because he has been accused by a Moscow court of, this is totally like separate, organizing the murder of two Russian businessmen, that's crime number one, with illegally acquired weapons, crime number two. He's arrested and put on an international wanted list. And of course, he denies all charges, or not of course, but he denies all the charges. His lawyer's like, we're going to fight this in this Moscow court. Where is he at this time? Is he in Moscow? So it's really unclear. And I, I, I tried. I tried pretty hard to figure out where he is. I think like right now where he is. And at that time, I think that he is in Turkey. And this is the last piece of the puzzle. He built that. He invested, right? 1.5, give or take a billion, billion dollars into Turkey, right? In some way or another. And in that process, obviously, he, like, was acquainted with all of the, like, top officials of Turkey. And he made a deal with them that they would give him citizenship in exchange, kind of. So he okay. had, like, that's what I meant when I said he was a smart cookie. Like, he had his reasons for choosing Turkey, for opening that, for doing something so significant um, in another country. But, like, whatever, he chose Turkey. So he had citizenship and had like gotten all his paperwork together. So when all of this shit started to hit the fan, as they say, as far as I understand it, he went there. It's very unclear, but I think he's most likely still there or somewhere like he's on an international wanted list. Like, I don't know. You have to get like asylum, right? Asylum. What do you mean by that? I mean, if you're on an international wanted list, like, doesn't that mean that anyone can arrest you in any country? Yeah, I, th I, th I feel like, yeah. Like, I don't think you can travel. Because anybody who has an agreement with Russia will arrest you, I would assume. Yeah, so maybe, like, maybe, but that's what I mean by asylum. Like, that's like Snowden sought asylum. Oh, yeah. I, it feels weird to call it asylum when you're, like, when you're a criminal. is so tightly paired with political, not with, like, planning murders. I had to get asylum because I killed some people. I, I I honestly, it's kind of annoying that I can't figure out where he is after 2017. Maybe he's dead also. Wait, this last little tidbit is that the market itself, like, as you might imagine, the closing of it was not like a clean thing. It wasn't like, okay, we're closed. Like, put a close sign on now. Like, it was really shitty for the people who worked there, first of all, because it was like raid, a raid. And then also lots of them didn't have um, documentation documents to yeah documentation to be in russia so 
a lot of people just found themselves without a job, without a place to live. What the fuck am I going to do? But interestingly enough, because there were so many Chinese people there, the Chinese government, like, intervened or did something. They, like, sent people to come and, oh. like, help the Chinese people. Like, I mean, it was, like, 60,000 people. Yeah. It's, like, right? a butt yeah. yeah. But, yeah, I think that that was probably, like, a pretty horrible experience, even if it was a horrible place to live and work. Oh, and the other thing is that all the stuff. Like, there's billions of dollars worth of stuff there. And, like, where... Or at least millions, but I think billions. And, like, where does it all go? It's just in those containers. And for a while, like, after the market's closed, no one is allowed to touch the stuff, right? Some of it's destroyed, like the toxic stuff or whatever. If you're uh, one of the people who sold stuff there, you can't just go get your stuff and be like, okay, well, I'm going to sell it somewhere else. Like, <laughs> <Yeah>. bye. <laughs> Which really fucking sucks because you yeah, invested people money. Lost, people lost so much Yeah, they money. lost thousands of tens of thousands of dollars and but then of course as you might imagine the fucking guards who were guarding the like containers started to like take bribes for people to take their stuff away oh my god so yeah there was like a whole racket around that so some people could come and get like it's like the market never stops even when it's over like yeah like basically the whole the whole wheel kept turning at least for a little while I'm pretty sure now it's just like been mostly bulldozed or just sort of like a trash situation because it was a vacant lot. Uh, at one point, there was like a plan to build something there, but um, as yet, it has not been realized. But at one point, the plan for that location was to build some much needed, as always, residential housing. And the sort of like motive behind that, and the most recent thing I read about that was from February, was. We got to put those people whose whose shove keys we tore down somewhere. <laughs> so we may put them on top of the chair because on market. That is the episode. If you want to support us, if you want to support Sir, then please head over to our Patreon at patreon.com slash cheese in Russia. And you can support us at any amount small or large on an ongoing basis as always be sure to follow us at she's in russia on telegram and twitter if you have a question about russia give us a call at plus one three four seven two nine two seven one two six or you can call our skype and leave a message also at she's in russia subscribe to our monthly image-based newsletter at she's in and we will see you next week probably